Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. Guest. Her name is Dr. Ada Ferrer, and she has just, just published a book on September 7th, 2021. Title of the book is Cuba, an American History. It has excellent reviews on Amazon. Well-deserved and a really fascinating book. I learned so much about Cuban history and really how it is affected by the U.S. So we can talk more about that. But Dr. Ferrer is the Julius Silver Professor of History and Latin American and Caribbean History at New York University. She is the beneficiary of the twenty of a 2018 Guggenheim Fellowship. She also has won many book prizes. One is the 2015 Frederick Douglass Book Prize for the best book on slavery. And also another prize from the 2015 Frederick Catt Prize for the best book in Latin American history, and also the 2015 Wesley Logan Prize for the best book on the African diaspora uh, from the AHA. So she's won many, many prizes for her books. Some of the earlier titles, one from 2005 is Insurgent Cuba, Race, Nation, and Revolution, 1868 to 1898. And also in 2014, Freedom's Mirror, Cuba and Haiti in the Age of Revolution. But again, we're going to talk about this book she just published. Again, title is Cuba and American History. So Dr. Ferrer, are you there? I'm here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who might not have heard your background, can you talk about your personal life and, and your academic career and what led you to write this fascinating book, an American Cuba and American History? Sure. Well, I was born in Cuba. And my family, or my mother and I left in 1963. Um, and I grew up in a place that was mostly Cuban, Cuban immigrants, Cuban refugees. And so I grew up hearing stories about Cuba all the time, living with the reality of family separation. My, my mother had left my brother behind on the island. And you know, it was in a, it was an obsession for a lot of people around me. So I always I kind of share, began to share that obsession and became interested in understanding it. What was this place where I had been born but couldn't remember? And so in 1990, I went back to the island for the first time, and I met my family. I saw where I was born, and I began doing research in libraries and archives on Cuban history. And so since 1990, I've been traveling back almost every year, uh, sometimes more than once a year, and always doing all those things. Most of my, you know, the day-to-day, -day, Monday through Friday, is usually sitting, uh, sitting in an archive or a library, looking through old documents. And then on weekends or evenings, I see family and and friends I've made over the years. So I've come to know the island well as, you know, in a way as a kind of, as, as, part, as part of who I am, but then I've also come to know it well as an object of study. And I think it has a fascinating history uh, for many reasons. One reason is the links to the US, which you, which you alluded to in passing. And I wrote the book because, or this book now, in part because I feel like Americans don't know this history and they don't know how much of a shared history the two countries have. And I think, you know, policy um, is, you know, policy, diplomacy, travel, everything works better when people are better informed. I would definitely agree with that. And I agree that a lot of Americans don't know this past history of Cuba and how much the U.S. has really eyed Cuba and how, how They've cross-fertilized uh, the peoples and culture have cross-fertilized each other. I don't know if they know how much so 
to such a degree. Can you talk about really what the beginnings of Cuba, the Spanish kind of, uh, and going back to Christopher Columbus and how Cuba developed as an independent entity? Yeah. So Cuba, as you, as you said, was a, a Spanish colon, uh, colony. They Columbus landed there for the first time in 1492 and, and encountered a, a fascinating indigenous culture. We came to call those people the Tainos. And, um, you know, it, the majority of them died as a result of the conquest, but their culture, parts of their culture survived, the language, some of the music, um, and so on. And for a long time in the colonial period, because the, the Spanish began in the Caribbean, but then they went on to places like Mexico and the Andes, which had large, very organized indigenous empires and which had plentiful supplies of gold and silver. So the Spanish focused on those places because they could get you know, more profit from them. And Cuba became in some ways a kind of backwater. People preferred to go to wealthier, richer places. Uh, so Havana in particular, which sits right where the Gulf Stream kind of gathers, became a place that the Spanish used um, as a kind of home for treasure fleets. So all those ships, the, the Spanish Armada that would you know, go back and forth carrying gold and silver, all of them met in Havana and then did the cross-Atlantic cross journey, transatlantic journey together. So Havana from the start and Cuba from the start became kind of a place oriented outwards, a place meant to serve the colony, meant to serve the metropole Spain. Uh, and it wasn't until, so that, that pattern persists, but the main thing that the island became in the colonial period was a slave society. So a society based on, on the enslavement of Africans and their descendants, uh, most of whom were, were brought to the island to, to harvest sugar, to, part, to plant and harvest sugar. So, um, and that, you know, that characteristic of the island didn't it, it took shape really at the end of the 18th century and the 19th century right so i mean it was interesting some of the statistics that you cite in your book there really weren't that many people in cuba at that time whereas there's whole histories of hernan cortez and pizarro and right. all this stuff but it became a way spent so even these kind of words like armada yeah and tiburon came from this colonization and the, yeah subsequent thing i thought that was really interesting yeah words like shark i'm not yeah like shark or hurricane right these were things that they hadn't known in in spain or or europe so they use the indigenous words for them and now they are you know hurricane has it's the word hurricane in english has its roots in a, in a taino word so yeah and I, I thought that was one great aspect of your book is like you emphasize that there were indigenous people here maybe some of the other histories of this time did not acknowledge or emphasize them as as uh, much as you did so i credit you for that but um can you talk about how from havana and this area how the kind of growth in the sugar industry and the slave trade grew in cuba yeah well sugar was there from the start you know columbus had brought um a sugar cane cutting on I think it was his second voyage to the New World. Uh, so there's evidence of, of sugar from that time. But it really takes off, as I said, um, at the end of the 18th century. And one of the major reasons it does so then is uh, what we know of as the Haitian Revolution. So um, the Haitian Revolution occurred in the French colony of Saint-Domingue, which is very close. It's, what, it's the island that today has Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And... Um, at the time, 
the French colony of Saint-Domingue was the wealthiest colony in the world. I mean, wealthiest for the people who owned it and the people who um, held slaves. So it had the, it produced most of the sugar consumed across the world and its planters were, you know, wealthy, um, wealthy, happy men. Uh, when the Haitian revolution happened and the, the, the enslaved people rose up in rebellion and that sugar industry began to very, very quickly decline. And the Cuban planters realized that this for them was an opportunity. So they said, okay. And one of them, a very prominent, important one said, um, the hour of our happiness has arrived. And so they set about um, winning concessions from the Spanish crown and, and, and really developing uh, what became then the, the the most important sugar industry in the world in the in the 19th century, and it's at that point that the that the arrival of Africans um, from you know at, you know in car in in the holds of, of of slave vessels really took off as well. So it, that happened in, as a direct response to the Haitian Revolution. Right, and that also was kind of one of the earlier ties with the colonies or kind of America, early U.S., where they were involved in that slave trade, bringing some of this, uh, this these African slaves to Cuba. And I think you point out in your book, like, there was always an acknowledgement among the Cubans, maybe the Spaniard Cubans of Haiti and and their relations. And it started very early, the, the race relations in Cuba and how many... African Americans there were so they're always kind of concerned about something of what happened in Haiti and Cuba yeah. could happen in Cuba correct right absolutely and the spanish used that to really good effect so in you know in the early 19th century almost every colony of spain became independent so you look at mexico peru argentina you know they, they all became independent in the 1820s mostly and cuba didn't and one reason was that the the planters, the, you know, the elite planters um, w didn't want to risk a revolution as it happened in Haiti. So they decided to stick with Spain. And Spain basically kept saying, if you try to become independent, uh, another Haiti will happen. So it was used for, um, for conservative political purposes to keep the island a colony of Spain and to, and to maintain slavery. Right. I think you quoted like there was an, I mean, for that time, an immense amount of trade, 270,000 slaves in 30 years yeah. right there at the early 19th century. So significant amount. And also there was another kind of industry that took place in Cuba. Can you talk about the copper ore industry and the Virgin of Charity and how that's yeah. kind of an important cultural figure? Yeah. So that um, that's that's earlier. So uh, in the you know, Cuba's a very long island. If you laid it on its side, it would go from about where New York City is to about where Savannah, Georgia is, right? And the terrain changes. In the east, there are uh, beautiful mountains. I think they rise about 3,000 meters um, above, above sea level. And in the colonial period, um, you know, from the, from the 16th century on, there were deposits of, uh, of copper that and there was a mining company that you know that that um that that had enslaved workers mine mine the copper one of the things that happens and it's so you know every cuban knows the figure of the the virgin of charity she's the island's patron saint 
uh, in Spanish, it would be the Caridad del Cobre, the charity of copper. And so you ask a Cuban in Cuba, you ask a Cuban in Miami, anywhere, they will know her figure. Many will have a little statue of her in their home, uh, as I do, and as, and as you know, our family home did growing up. But many Cubans don't realize that the reason, the, the devotion to her um, as a figure and the longevity longevity of her of her you know of her cult you would say uh is due to the fact that those enslaved miners uh really committed themselves to her so she was their patron saint before she was the nation's patron saint so the story that is seen as a kind of national national cultural story is really tied to the institution of slavery and to the history of of black cubans on the island and it is kind of it kind of reminded me of what happened in mexico the virgin of guadalupe that same type of character very early on that still pervades the culture to this day right, this right. and so you had this kind of uh very early on you had these conflicts and even so even like during the colonial time there's Havana and Cuba got involved in the Seven Year War. Can you talk about how the U.S. and or really it was the British Empire influenced and affected Cuba from that yeah. early period? Yeah. So the Seven Years War, sometimes, you know, when I studied it in school in, here in the U.S., we knew it as the French and Indian War. Right. Where it was a, you know, um, dispute between the French and the British over land in North America in the in in the, in the north mostly but really it was a war that involved most of most of europe and and spain and you know britain declared war on spain and one of the things that it decided to do was to to, to seize to attack and seize havana havana had this reputation for being a wealthy city in part because it had this long history of serving as the place where the Spanish stored their silver and where the treasure fleets always were. So people said that silver coins flowed in Havana as if they were, you know, rivers. And so a lot of European monarchs liked the idea of acquiring Havana and the British during the Seven Years War decided they would do that. So they attack um, in 1762 and it's uh, the siege lasts weeks because they can't take it. And finally, what helps the British take it is the arrival of troops from from North America, from places like Connecticut and Rhode Island and New York, etc. And so they occupy, they, they defeat the Spanish and Havana becomes British territory uh, for about 10 months. So it becomes part of the same empire as, as the 13 colonies. And in, during those 10 months, you have North American merchants just kind of descend and all over, you know, the city, they kind of take over bringing their products and, and, and taking out sugar and other things to sell in the 13 colonies. So it's a period where you, where the commercial relations between the 13 colonies and Havana get really um, drawn, get drawn close together. In the end, you know, when the treaty that, the, you know, the, the, all the parties sign a treaty to end the war and, um, and Britain gives up Havana for Florida. So gotcha. uh, yeah, and so, so that's, I say in the book that that's the first time that the fates of Havana and Florida were intertwined, but it's not the last time. <laughs> right, so yeah. it goes all the way back. All the and, way back. Yeah. and also the relations in before the US became the US 
the relations between Cuba and the colonies were very strong economically. Would you agree right. with that? Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's re that's really becomes really important during the American Revolution. Uh, you know, we all we're, we're taught to appreciate the French role in the American Revolution. You know, Lafayette and um, and Rochambeau and others who provided assistance to, to Washington and others, but the Spanish also provided a lot of help. And a lot of that help was funneled through Havana. So during the American Revolution, um, the Spanish let the colonists trade in Havana freely. And um, it's where they got a lot of the silver currency that then served as the foundation of the Americans' first uh, central bank, the first national bank. Uh, a Spanish officer in Havana collected silver uh, that was sent to George Washington and Lafayette right before the Battle of, of Yorktown. And it was that money that was used to pay George Washington's troops who hadn't been paid in, in a long time. So, so the, the, the Cuban assistance and the Spanish assistant was also part of the story of the American Revolution. Right. And there was actually kind of a figure kind of like uh, the French Lafayette or something, Mira Morales, I think. Yeah, Mirais. Yeah, he was quite a character. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in Washington's having friends, you know, he's happy to see this emissary. <clears throat> so he was very sensitive about the contact, you know, the him and the growing country and Cuba and its right. representatives. Now. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, it kind of it continues. The U.S. becomes a country and <clears throat> there's always a tension in Cuba between the, the system of slavery and its people maintaining slavery. Can you talk about how some of those conflicts manifested themselves? Yeah. So, um, you know, slavery is a powerful or was a powerful and profitable institution. And that was true in the U.S. It was true in um, in Cuba as well. One of the things that's really important to, to there's several things that you can note about, about slavery in Cuba. One is that, as I said before, it's always tied to the cultivation of sugar. So you can follow, for instance, the, the, the rise of sugar in Cuba, and you can see the deforestation of the island follow. So the sugar boom first happens in around Havana, in the hinterland around Havana, and little by little, it goes eastward, and you see the forest fall all the way. So it's a way of kind of tracing Cuban history. And with each region sugar enters, uh, you can see a different relationship with the U.S. So, for example, one of the most interesting places is uh, east of Havana, the province of Matanzas. It's also a, a city, Matanzas, and next door is a city called Cárdenas. In the 19th century, those cities had so many American um, plantation owners. So there were Americans there who owned plantations, who the Americans provided the sugar equipment that, that, um, that processed the, the, sugar, the raw sugar cane. Americans built uh, a lot of the railroads that, that took the sugar to, to port. Uh, and, as, and as you mentioned before, Americans were involved in the illegal slave trade that brought, you know, captive laborers to, to work the sugar. And that, you know, so many things, I feel like that region is kind of um, just exemplifies the growing links between Cuba and the U.S. in, the, in that mid-19th century period. And it shows the extent to which the link was built on slavery. So, for example, I have 
um, there's there's one figure. His name was um, James DeWolf. He was a wealthy U.S. senator from Rhode Island, and he was also a, he was a slave trader, and or he had been a slave trader. And his he and his family owned four plantations in Cuba. Uh, and then he used the profits from those plantations to invest in other industries um, and, and, and in back home um, in the Northeast. So that's one example. Um, there's uh, a U.S. vice president. Um, this is one of my favorite stories in the, in the book. There's a U.S. vice president, uh, William Rufus King, who was vice president to Franklin Pierce, uh, elected in 1853. And he actually took his oath of office on a Cuban sugar plantation in the middle of harvest season. So he became U.S. vice president while he stood on a Cuban sugar plantation. I mean, it's just remarkable. I read that the first time and couldn't believe it. I had to read it and reread it and reread it to make sure that it was true. But it's kind of a symbol of how, how closely intertwined those systems were. And it's also a sign of the fact that, that, that the U.S., and U.S. leaders always had this political interest in Cuba and in the possibility of acquiring Cuba and making it part of the U.S. Right. So Adams and you state in your book, Adams and Jefferson are talking about it, saying that it would be a good addition. But it was also curious to me, too, is that the Cuban elite also at that time had a desire to become part of the, the new U.S. Is yeah. that true? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, you know, Adams and, and Jefferson and um, Madison, Monroe, a lot, you know, they, they, they clearly did. And they would talk about how acquiring Cuba would, would help them kind of fill out the, the true destiny of, of the new American nation. They thought it would help protect their commerce, uh, establish their power, um, in, in a wider world, et cetera. In terms of the Cuban elite, the Cuban elite was always tied to slavery and sugar. And um, they saw, you know, Spain was weakening. Spain had already lost the rest of its colonies in South America. And they thought of, they thought of Spain as weak in two ways. One is that they didn't trust that Spain would stand up to Britain. And Britain in this moment is becoming increasingly um, vigilant and militant against the slave trade. So they thought that the Spanish elite might acquiesce to, to, to Britain and, and really crack down on the slave trade and on slavery. And the, the, the elite, uh, the Cuban elite feared that. So they saw the U.S. as kind of a possible savior because the U.S. was increasingly powerful and it was completely committed to slavery. So they thought, in a sense, that they could protect uh, their investments, their their stake in slavery and sugar by allying themselves with uh, with the U.S. Right. So you saw, you know, this kind of view. People are in exile in the New York City at that time. I think, I think it was Felix Barella or yeah. one, one of these early people, even before Marti uh, was still, you know, still uh, influencing people in, in the U.S. about Cuba at that time. But uh, can you talk about how the Monroe Doctrine kind of influenced the relations between Cuba and the U.S.? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the Monroe Doctrine became uh, U.S. policy in 1823. And the, the, the basic idea behind it uh, is that the U.S. was stating for the world that no European power could 
colonize or recolonize Latin America. So basically it's a way of kind of declaring the hemisphere uh, free of any European um, colonization. But the Monroe Doctrine also recognized that, you know, places like there were a few places that were still um, European colonies, namely um, Cuba and Puerto Rico. So, but, so the policy basically said, uh, no, that's fine. We're not gonna kick Spain out, but no one else can come in and take those places. So what it did is it, it in theory, it kept Europe um, out of Latin America and out of Cuba, but really it was designed as a policy meant to keep uh, British, meant to check British influence and British power uh, in the hemisphere. And in the case of Cuba, that's what they most feared. The American leaders did not think that Cubans could win their own independence or they thought if Cubans managed to win their own independence, they, the elite would likely ally with the US. So what the Americans feared was that the British would take Cuba and then end the slave trade and eventually end slavery. And then they would lose, uh, you know, the US would lose that those connections, which um, they didn't want to do. And you, like you devote one chapter of torture plots to kind of this growing resistance by um, African slaves. Can you talk about how that was addressed by the Cuban elite and how kind of the, like you talked about earlier, some of these English or uh, UK influenced people also were trying to motivate to overthrow slavery? Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting about slavery is that wherever you find the institution of slavery, you will find enslaved people trying to do battle in one way or another against it, whether that's by running away or by resisting and trying to um, li limit the work they do or feigning illness or or in some instances rebelling. So you have rebellions and uh, you have runaway slave communities in Cuba. You have rebellions for almost from the from the very beginning. So um, there's two there's two rebellions, slave rebellions that I talk about um, in the book. Even before the one in that chapter, I talk about one led by a man named Jose Antonio Aponte. Aponte was a free man, in, a free black man in Havana, a carpenter and an artist, and he organized this uh, large rebel, or in theory, this large rebellion against slavery and against um, against the Spanish. The the rebellion was was quashed. They they after attacking three plantations, the rebels were caught and um, captured and tried. And one Aponte was was captured and um, and and brought to trial and. It's one of the things that makes it so interesting is that Aponte was also an artist. So he had a book that he had made that he called the Book of Paintings. And the Book of Paintings was full of all kinds of interesting things. And he would show it to the recruits in the movement to, to help them kind of imagine a world without slavery, to help them imagine uh, a black revolution. The authorities found the book, confiscated it and made him describe every image in the book and then they hanged him and then the book disappeared. And so all we have are his descriptions. So I write about that one. I think that's a fascinating uh, example. Um, and I may write more about that at some point. And then the other one, which you just mentioned is one that unfolds uh, precisely in Matanzas, the region I, I mentioned before um, in 1843 and 1844, where you just have a series of one rebellion and one conspiracy after another. 
uh, in this in this relatively small region. And it, one of the things that's interesting about that movement is that it was both urban and rural. There were there were enslaved people involved on sugar plantations and coffee plantations, but there were also free men of color from the cities. You had musicians. You had one of the most prominent people was a man named Placido, who was a poet, and he was one of the leaders and executed for his role. And also British abolitionists. Uh, were involved. And that's one of the reasons the Americans feared them. So there were some British abolitionists who, who worked with the rebels and the, and the conspirators. But, um, you know, it, ultimately what the Spanish did is it, you know, it, it defeated one rebellion after another, one conspiracy after another, and it engaged in very brutal torture against people suspected or captured, where people were uh, tied to a ladder and then whipped, and then whipped which is why the, the whole series is called La Escalera, Escalera being ladder. Um, and one of, the, one of the results of both that, those rebellions and conspiracies and the repression by Spain is that it really decimated the, uh, the free community of color, free blacks uh, who had been artists and poets and musicians and, and so on. So many of them were killed, many of them were banished and forcibly uh, removed from the island. So it kind of um, struck terror at, in the heart of enslaved people and also in the heart of this free Black community that was upwardly mobile and that was sympathetic to the idea of independence. And for the Spanish, it kind of helped them prove the point that how, of how dangerous any kind of movement could be, right? That right. if they wanted independence, well, they might end up with a slave rebellion. So the Spanish used it um, to that end. Right. And you call like the peace that happened, the, tr the tranquility of terror. So it right. wasn't like a happy yeah. peace at all. And I mean, it just kind of led to farther. I thought it was interesting that after the American Civil War, so many of these uh, guard and these other characters came to Cuba. So it's just an additional tie uh, between the two countries. Right. Can you talk about the importance of Jose Marti and kind of talk about the Ten Years War and how that developed? Yeah. So the the Cuban independence movement, which I think, you know, the world doesn't know enough about. <laughs> that's my that's my own sense. It's a fascinating movement. Uh, the first war it begins in 1868 and it lasts 10 years. So that's the 10 years war. And um, there would be another war shortly after, which is called the Little, the Little War from 1879 to 1880. Then there's a longer period of peace in which there's a lot of mobilization in favor of independence. And the final war of independence takes place from 1895 to 1898. So really, it's a 30-year process of fighting for and mobilizing and advocating for independence from Spain. Uh, there are you know, two things to, there are many things one can say about that movement. I'll just point out two. One is that the wars uh, on the Cuban side were waged by a new institution, which came, which the rebels called the, the Army of Liberation or the Liberation Army. And it was a popular fighting force. Many enslaved people and formerly enslaved people joined. Uh, black men had jo joined and also, you know, ascended through the ranks. So some of the most important figures were themselves men of color. A famous one, the most famous is a man named Antonio Maceo, who was, who was at the time very well known in the U.S., uh, especially African-Americans who in many cases named their sons after him. 
yeah, so they didn't they didn't name them they named them Maceo, but in English they pronounced it Maceo. So that's a that was a common African American name in the late nineteenth um, late nineteenth and early twentieth century. So that's one thing that's interesting about the movement. The other thing is that because it unfolds alongside the end of slavery, right? The, the, in the first war, the leaders um, abolished slavery in rebel territory. So from the start the movement is linked to the question of slavery and to the question of race. And it develops this powerful argument against the Spanish. Now forever, and you know, Spain and its allies had said, Cuba can't be independent because if it tries to become independent, you will get a race war, you will get another Haiti, et cetera, et cetera. And what the independence movement did was to completely um, disavow that, that argument and say, no, we've had, uh, we've had this war and black men and white men fought together side by side. And the Republic we are building will not have slavery and it will stand against uh, racial warfare and racial inequality and discrimination, et cetera. So it developed a language that um, of racial equality and, um, and anti-racism that was, that was very novel and powerful from in a society that was only, you know, nine years past slavery. Slavery ended in Cuba in 1886. So that was really interesting. And one of the figures who most espoused these ideas was the figure of Jose Martí, who you just asked me about. And Jose Martí was the son of, uh, he was white, he was the son of Spaniards. He was arrested by um, the Spanish early on in the Ten Years' War and exiled uh, to Spain. He came back briefly, but then, you know, was arrested again. He realized there was no way for him to live in Cuba, that he would be arrested and likely executed. So he did what so many other people did when they're seeking refuge. He came to the U.S. and and he came to New York City. And so he lived more of his adult life in New York City than, than anywhere else. And right, like 15 years, right? Yeah, yeah, because he died, you know, in 1895 in the first war. So he didn't have a long adult life and most of it, you know, more of it was lived here in New York which is where I am, um, than, than in Cuba. And um, he's a fascinating figure. He's, you know, he, he made a living here as a writer, as a clerk. He used to write scenes about American life that he would publish in newspapers across Latin America. And he would write about everything. He would write about, um, you know, he, he went to a graduation at Vassar College and described what it was like for an elite institution to graduate only women. Um, he went to, he would describe um, a lynching and uh, in really powerful, uh, unforgettable ways. He described immigrants arriving in, in Castle Island. So he was basically a, a chronicler of, of life uh, in the US and he, but he wrote in Spanish. So he chronicled the US for um, for people in Latin America. And in terms of, and he was, and he founded a political party in favor of Cuban and Puerto Rican independence. And, and that was what he was most devoted to, uh, was the independence of, of Cuba. And he saw he, the, you know, and he talked about what, what he thought an independent Cuba would be. And, and he talked about that Cuba in, you know, in radically egalitarian, terms. So he talked about, about racial equality, about class equality. And he also talked about the power of the U.S. And he, in, in, in one of his, the last letters, um, 
Well, in, in several in letters and in essays he published, he would talk about the how the U.S. was becoming more and more powerful, that the U.S., he said, disdained Latin America, and that Latin America had to be careful about the U.S. extending its hold over um, over Latin America. So he, so he imagined Cuban independence, and he called it a revolution for the world. And I think he called it that because he thought it would bring two really important things potentially to the world. One was a model of kind of racial equality in a former slave society. And the other one was that it might it would serve as a check on U.S. ambitions in regard to Latin America. Right. And he used the term kind of our America, but his it was more of kind of a, a Latino or Spanish or even Cuban kind of perception of that, not with not having the U.S. And he used terms that were kind of unplugged, like the U.S. kind of saw Cuban as, a, you know, kind of a victim, kind of a victim possibly. And I think they used terms that were pretty in interesting, I think, for yeah. that time. Yeah. Yeah. That that essay, Our America, is one of his most anthologized uh, essays, one of his most famous. And it's precisely that, that, you know, that America as a term is for North America and South America. It's the whole hemisphere. And, but it had, by that point, it had already come to be synonymous with the U.S., uh, in the U.S. So he wrote this essay about our America referring to, um, you know, Mexico, South America, Central America. Right. So, I mean, and so then he leaves for Cuba and becomes really kind of a national I mean, he becomes really the uh, national figure for revolution. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not not initially in the moment because he dies. You know, he's killed in battle just about two months after he arrives, uh, or three months. But so, it, and it, so at that point, it's not till after um, the war ends that he becomes, um, you know, the national the national figure, the, 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 you know, the, the foremost hero of Cuba. Right. And he still remains that today, both in Miami and in Havana, you know? Right. And there was always kind of like an East West tension in, in the country of Cuba. Would you agree with that? Like you talk about this whole, uh, what was it? This dividing fortification that they built between East West, but there's always mm -hmm. been some variation, like maybe the difference between Northern and Southern California. Yeah, I think that I, I think that's true. Um, historically, in the colonial period, you know, Western Cuba, which includes Havana, was, you know, the one that had the most investment economically, had the most wealth, had the most power. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense in which Havana, in particular, uh, and the West in places like Matanzas, etc., was more uh, modernized. More, there was more infrastructure, etc. So, so yes, that that that's true. The East is more mountainous, so it never had those large modern sugar during the colonial period. It never had those large um, modern sugar plantations. It had kind of smaller uh, peasant production, smaller sugar farms, coffee, etc. So, uh, and historically, Havana has always been more powerful than the rest of the country, right? It's been the, the capital most of. So it, it, it's enjoyed more privileges and more um, development than, than other parts of the island. Right. And there's just so much more in your book. You talk about the main blows up, the war, the Spanish-American War, uh, all the times of going up to World War II, then to Castro. I mean, it kind of even comes to the present right now. I think uh, Raul Castro in April just decided to cede his head of the Communist Party 
And you you have that experience there from what 1962 between Batista getting I think it was Batista right he got uh, kicked out by the communists. I mean, can you talk? Oh, we're kind of at 40 minutes. Yeah. Can you kind of provide a summary or what's left? What what else you talk about in the book? And yeah. then yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, as you can probably tell, I can talk about this stuff forever. I'll just tell, I mean, one of the things about this, so the book covers, you know, from before Columbus to the present, as you say, so it, you know, it ends with the, you know, with Raul Castro stepping down and uh, with Biden getting elected and, and so on. But um, as it proceeds, the chapters are very, are generally short. So there's, I hope, some kind of page turning momentum and readers can just kind of, you know, bite off little morsels at a time. So, uh, so for example, I, I think the Bay of Pigs chapter um, will interest readers and the, and the missile crisis and so on. But in terms of a summary, I would just say that um, the, you know, Fidel Castro's, the revolution came to power in 1959 by deposing Batista, who was, um, who had assumed power illegally. I think the most important thing to remember, and which I think may surprise some Americans, because they think of they think of Cuba as, and they think they think of the re the revolution as Fidel Castro's communist revolution, but in the beginning it wasn't communist, and in the beginning he was just one leader among many. So one of the things that I try to pay attention to throughout is the way. I don't, we all know what happened with Cuba. We all know that Castro is going to become really important, that the country is going to be communist, that there's going to be a rift with the U.S. and relations are going to be severed and you're going to get things like the missile. So we all know that that happens. But I try to tell it in a way that would have been experienced by people on the ground. No one in 1959, in January 59, or very few people would have imagined the outcome of all that. So I try to kind of restore some of that sense of, of uncertainty, of excitement, of um, of history being made in the moment. So that's the way I write about it. Uh, the revolution does become communist. It becomes communist a not as a result of one thing, but several things. One is I think that that Castro himself was predisposed and, and sympathetic to that ideology. One thing is that some of the goals that he began to um, to try to meet in the beginning, things like land reform, anti-corruption, et cetera. Those were things that were part of mainstream Cuban political discourse for a long time. And he began delivering on them. And I think he realized that as people, and people supported those early, uh, those early moves. So I think he came to realize, oh, I'm popular. They like this. I can do this. And he just kept going, <laughs> uh, realizing that he could. It's almost like he realized, oh, I can do this and I can do it even more and I can do it more radically. And and so he kind of took off on that path. The other thing was the miscalculation of the U.S. The U.S. was only looking at this as a question of the Cold War and what Fidel Castro was going to do vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. and the Soviet Union. But Castro was really good at using... Um, a tradition of Cuban nationalism and a tradition of Cuban skepticism about U.S. power and about U.S. intentions on the island. And he just used that to really good effect. He said they're going to invade. And then you'd have people in Congress threatening to invade, you know, so, right. so he used that. So he used that to really good effect. And then finally, the Cold War itself, it made it really hard uh, for Cuba to assume a position that wasn't 
either, uh, you know, as U.S. ally or Soviet ally. It made a kind of middle position impossible. So all those things made it uh, become a, a, a communist revolution. Right. And but it just shows and I think that you you know, confirmed and verified this theme of your book, how much the U.S. has influenced Cuba and the, the uh, also Cuba influencing the U.S. So it's yeah. all been there for centuries. So really a great book, highly recommended. Where's the best place for people to get Cuba and American history? Well, they can get it almost anywhere. So I would say, uh, you know, they could get it on Amazon. If they buy from Amazon, they could get it at an independent bookstore if that's where they buy. I have a, a website, adaferrer.net, where uh, there's links to different places to, to buy it and, and more information on, on other work I'm doing. Ada Ferrer. And so people can reach out to you through that yes. website as well Absolutely. if they want to ask any questions or anything. Yeah. It's adaferrer.net, correct? Yes. I'll yes. put that in the show notes. Okay. Again, it's Dr. Ada Ferrer, and the title of the book is Cuba, an American History, just published September 7th, 2021. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. All right. I did too. Take care. See you there. Bye. Stay there for a second.